Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, a special episode, The Lies and Times of Boris Johnson, culled from the last year of the Byline Times podcast. As the Prime Minister clings to power, we hear from friends, former friends and opponents of the man in number 10 to build up critical profile of one of the UK's most controversial leaders whose Teflon coating might finally be wearing off. There was another episode when he was sacked by, from the Tory party front bench for, so the Tory party said, misleading them. So there was a record. But that said, he, it was when he became prime minister that the lies started to pile up. Boris is extraordinarily difficult to dislike because he's extremely funny and entertaining. And he's also done a brilliant job in winning for us all these red wall seats in the West Midlands and in the North East. And be in no doubt, it was Boris that won them. We know that education is one of the Prime Minister's personal priorities, which he openly states is his ambition to ensure more girls get a quality education. So cutting these services is going to have a direct impact on the ability of the UK to meet those targets. Girls and women not having access to the services that they need is going to mean more families will stay in poverty. They're not going to be able to break the cycle and take advantage of education or economic development opportunities. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times doesn't have wealthy backers or hedge funds behind it. We rely on income from people like you taking out subscriptions to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times. Your subs also help fund Byline TV and our fantastic news-breaking website, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. Just go to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. So, Boris Johnson then. I've been scrolling through the Byline Times podcast for the past year to build up a profile of the man I described in February as the Pinocchio PM. Johnson isn't the first British Prime Minister to tell lies. He won't be the last either, but he is possibly one of the most prolific. His dishonesty has been catalogued by journalist Peter Oborn, whose book, The Assault on Truth, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and the Emergence of a New Moral Barbarism, was published in early 2021. Oborn is a natural Conservative and one-time colleague of Johnson. He had me as political editor of The Spectator, or political correspondent, I think we called it. Do you know, it was the most wonderful four years. He was a fantastic editor. He was very, very creative. You never had to explain anything to him. He had a very close to genius, I used to think. And it was a terrific magazine. He brought on great writers. He was a joy to work for. He wasn't there all that much. He was fairly hands-off. But that didn't mean that he didn't imprint himself on a, what then was a, a sort of liberal internationalist paper. And what kind of person is he? Well, what I knew was extraordinarily engaging to talk to, very intelligent, always very busy, always off onto the, the next thing. But he, he stood up for me once or twice. I got into quite serious trouble and he stood up for me. And so I... On the basis of working in for him for four years at The Spectator, I was very loyal to Boris. But as we'll hear, that loyalty was tested beyond its limit. Like many people who know Boris Johnson, 
Peter Oborn liked him, in spite of his dubious regard for truth. As Brussels correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, Johnson helped create or spread untrue stories about the EU, including tales about bendy bananas and the size of condoms. He got that job at the Telegraph after being dismissed from his first journalistic post. Early on at the Times newspaper, at his first job in journalism, he was sacked for inventing a quote. And then there was another episode when he was sacked by, from the Tory party front bench for, so the Tory party said, misleading them. So there was a record. But that said, he, it was when he became prime minister that the lies started to pile up. Oborn's patience finally snapped when he saw how ruthless Johnson was prepared to be to keep power after becoming Prime Minister in July 2019 as Brexit loomed. There was one reason which was a very, very important story which led to me setting out on the path which led to this book. It was in about August, September last uh, 2019. It was, do you remember that great confrontation between the uh, Johnson government, the new Johnson government, and there were quite a lot of Tory backbenchers who were arguing for proper procedure on Brexit. They weren't arguing against Brexit, but it was it was a vicious argument. But people like Dominic Grieve, Hilary Benn, Sir Oliver Letwin, and I know them all slightly, and they're all honourable, unusually honourable men. And the front page story splash story on the mail on sunday said something to the effect that dining street was investigating that these people for taking money from europe or they were taking money they, they portrayed them as traitors and this investigation they knew about it because of so-called dining street sources so dining street was briefing a major paper that these people were being investigated for being traitors to this country. And the story was followed up in several papers the following day, and it just smelt just something wrong about it. I checked it out. It was a very interesting experience because the Cabinet's office, which I rang up, said it had no knowledge of any investigation. And the Dining Street Press Office said there had not been an investigation. But the Mail on Sunday continued to insist that Dining Street sources had told it there had been. Uh, and so there never was an investigation, but people in Dining Street, that's, I don't know exactly who, but Boris Johnson's political team in Dining Street was briefing the papers that these people were being investigated for being traitors, which was a straight lie, a fabrication, which Johnson himself, when interviewed, I think, by Nick Robinson, certainly on the Today programme, Two days later, he said, yes, there are major questions, there are big questions to investigate here. So he substantiated that lie, cynically put out to smear very honourable British politicians. That's when I actually lost it. I felt after that that I couldn't believe or support Boris Johnson in government. But how did Johnson get to be Prime Minister in the first place? Like Donald Trump, he played to a sense of nationalism, xenophobia and exceptionalism, allied to a peculiarly British air of unkempt eccentricity. According to author Richard Beard, Johnson's characteristic combination of bluster and crowd-pleasing can be partly attributed to his posh boarding school education. Richard himself was packed off to prep school aged eight in 1975, the same year as the 11-year-old Boris Johnson was sent away from home. 
The term before, another cocky Tory Prime Minister-in-waiting, David Cameron, began his boarding school career. Richard Beard's book is called Sad Little Men. I called the book Sad Little Men because one of the problems here is that when you arrive at these schools, age 8 or age 11 or age 13, there's no psychological research which shows that it's good for you at any age to be separated from your family life. No matter what age you you arrive in these schools, that sad little boy who arrives at the beginning and is sad about being there has to put up defences to survive. And inside these men as adults, there is that sad little boy. And I call them sad little men because there are in these schools, the eight-year-old boys are often called little men. They made a point of, you know, within the school, these are the little men. And that sad little boy then determines the way that the adult behaves forever after and is looking to protect himself. It's looking to make sure he's not the butt of the jokes and making sure that he can make progress often at the expense of others. So that's part of the inner child which survives. Another obvious way is the importance in the UK of the old boy network is you go back to your school days, you go back to your school friends or people like you have been similar schools to get help. And again, it's very exclusive. It doesn't allow other people into this very select group. At the same time, then, as this repression of yourself and this sense of superiority, this disdain for outsiders of all sorts, be they people of perceived lower social class, people who are not of the same skin tone as you, there is this other thing that these schools seem to inculcate, which is an incredible arrogance and perhaps overconfidence, which I think people will draw their own conclusions when they look at both David Cameron and Boris Johnson and see that in their characters. I think that arrogance is just a natural consequence of being told that you have been given the best education that money can buy. I mean, if you have the best education, by implication, everyone else has a less good education. And if they had a less good education, by implication, they're now less educated. And you could say that means less intelligent, less equipped for life, which again reinforces this idea, well, I had the best education, therefore I must be better. When I look at Cameron and Johnson, I I just see everything that I'm trying to combat really from my own childhood. And it was for me quite shocking to start off the, the first lockdown and look at them and recognize them as boys from my childhood and recognize them as, recognize myself in them and not in a good way And just to feel that I know something about these people, and I think other people should know this too. I think they were moulded in these schools, and they haven't turned around and looked back and had a reckoning with themselves. Johnson's desire to surround himself with people from a similar background certainly fits Richard Beard's template. The PM's inner circle has been dominated by fellow public school alumni. He also benefits from almost heroic levels of self-confidence. Johnson's biography of Churchill was seen by many reviewers as a ham-fisted attempt to cast himself in the same mould as Britain's wartime leader. In his book, Ten Great Lies and How They Shape the World, Otto English, a.k.a. Andrew Scott, takes aim at an anecdote in the biography which sees Churchill award a damehood to a cleaning lady as a reward for returning a secret document at great risk to herself during the Blitz. It's a wonderful story, but totally untrue. The thing with that story is, 
Johnson makes a big fuss in the book. And when he was plugging his book in New York and elsewhere, he made a big thing about how he tried to verify the story, to which you can only say, well, you can't have tried at all, yeah, because a very quick Google search brings up the National Archives and you can look at the awards dished out in the war and you can look at the awards dished out in 1940. I think it was his resignation honours he claimed he made her a DBE. That's what Johnson claims. He claims that in Churchill's resignation honours, he made her a DBE. Well, in the whole course of the war, I think Churchill awarded three DBEs, that's Dame of the British Empire, and they were all to highly aristocratic women. (laughs) There was no cleaning lady given an award. I went through all of the medals. The whole thing took me about an hour to check that story and properly, properly verify it, that that he hadn't given an award to a cleaning lady, not even an MBE, you know, no disrespect to the MBE, but not even the the slightly lower down the, the scale things. But Johnson had clearly been told this story by a relative of Winston Churchill and had just taken it on face value and put it in his book. And to be honest, I don't think he cared if it was true, as with so much else in Boris Johnson's life. I don't think he cares whether it's true. If it makes the person look good, he's happy to tell the story. He's happy for people to read it and he's happy for people to believe it. And that's the other problem, both with our current prime minister and with the Winston Churchill narrative. If you can't tell basic truths to people (laughs) and trust them with them, then where are we at? And what is it about Johnson and Churchill? Why does the Prime Minister want to venerate him so rather than seeing him as a human being, good in parts, flawed in parts, as we all are. Yes. Weirdly, when I started writing the book, I thought, you know, Johnson appropriating Churchill, how dare he, how disgusting. But then actually, when when you research the life of Winston Churchill, there's a lot of similarities between the two men. I, I, you know, people say, oh, he's no Winston Churchill. Actually, he is a lot like Winston <laughs> Churchill. You know, Winston Churchill was very often keen on the prize or getting the title, but very bad on delivering. There's that famous story of him in the First World War when he was first Lord of the Admiralty and after the disaster at Gallipoli, Churchill joins up and goes into the trenches. A lot of people know that story. And a lot of people say, doesn't that shine well on Winston Churchill? You know, what an amazing man. He resigns his ministerial position and he goes into the trenches. What what an absolute hero. Unfortunately... Everybody has neglected to notice that about a third of parliamentarians in the First World War were in uniform, and a great many were at the front. And indeed, 35 MPs and former MPs lost their lives in the First World War. And the thing with Churchill was, once he got there, he was mostly interested in what rank he was going to (laughs) be. He wanted to be a brigadier. And somebody said, but you haven't been in, in the army for, for nearly 30, 25 years or something. He said, I don't care. I want to be. And so he lobbied hard to become a brigadier. And, and when he was ended up being a mere colonel, was a bit disappointed and upset and wanted to come back to London. That's very Boris Johnson, isn't it? Yeah, Boris Johnson always liked the gig, the job, the title. But when he's got it, he doesn't really know what to do with it. And Winston Churchill spent most of his time at the front painting pictures and organising games for his men because there was no action 
where he was. But, <laughs> but the story looks good. And that, for Johnson, seems to be what's important, the look of things rather than the substance. There's an irony here, though, in that his great hero, Churchill, was a proponent of European unity. Johnson, on the other hand, became PM because of his promise to leave the EU to get Brexit done. By the early months of 2021, it was becoming clear that we were getting done by Brexit. Never mind the oven-ready deal promised by the PM, we couldn't even get everything we wanted at the supermarket. Shelves were empty because of food shortages, caused in part by the departure of thousands of Eastern European truckers. Laura Salt is Operations Director at a haulage firm in Burton-on-Trent. Uh, it's been a nightmare to get drivers. You just can't... There just seems to be nobody around and drivers are your tools and at the minute it's getting harder and harder to find them and it's just causing us chaos. It's had a massive impact. We've had a lot of uh, European drivers actually go back just due to paperwork and, you know, it's just a lot easier to go back to their countries. We've had Spain, Portuguese and Czech Republic driver just go back home. It's easier for them paperwork wise and it's just causing chaos. Supermarkets weren't the only ones to be affected by post-Brexit labour shortages. A lack of slaughterhouse staff meant that 30,000 pigs had to be culled while Britain imported pork from the EU. Then there was the vexed issue of Northern Ireland, which Johnson said would be treated differently from the rest of the UK over his dead body. Yet the Northern Ireland Protocol delivered by Johnson's government created precisely that division, leading to violent protests in Belfast in April 2021. Many unionists were angry at what they regarded as a sellout by the Westminster government and specifically by the Prime Minister. On the Byline Times podcast, we heard from Councillor John Kyle from the Progressive Unionist Party. Unionists feel that the British government and Boris Johnson in particular did not defend their interests, did not act in their best interests. But in a sense, Northern Ireland became collateral damage to achieving a Brexit for the rest of the United Kingdom. So there is a sense of betrayal there. Uh, There's a sense that Boris Johnson has not acted honourably or honestly. And so there is an anger in that. But it's also undergirded by a fear that this does mark a turning point where Northern Ireland is beginning to drift apart from the rest of the United Kingdom. Brexit, of course, was a battle Johnson chose to fight. Covid wasn't. There will be those who have sympathy for the fact that the arrival of the pandemic and the course it took were unpredictable. Johnson's government deserves credit too for the UK's swift and pioneering vaccination programme delivered by the NHS. That has to be balanced by the test and trace scheme, which MPs on the Public Accounts Committee said had failed in its main objective to cut infection levels, despite a multi-billion pound budget. Test and trace had several key Johnsonian characteristics. There was the chest-beating promise. The scheme, he said, would be world-beating. There were complaints of cronyism. Test and trace was run by Baroness Dido Harding, whose background was in business, not in healthcare. She was appointed to the Lords by old chum David Cameron, is the wife of Tory MP John Penrose, and shares a passion for horse racing with the then Health Minister Matt Hancock, who gave her the job without it being advertised. 
Test and trace contracts were also outsourced, part of a wider drive by the Johnson government towards contracting private companies to carry out the work of the NHS. This became such a feature of Covid that in February we dubbed it the privatised pandemic. This has been outsourcing on speed during the uh, pandemic, Adrian. To put it in a bit of context, the Department of Health and Social Care usually spends between one and two billion pounds a year on private sector procurement. During the pandemic over the past year, it has budgeted for a twenty-two billion pound spend on its test and trace system alone, and has spent in the range of sixteen billion on personal protective equipment. So this has been a huge campaign of public sector work going to big private firms. That was Byline Times Investigations editor Sam Bright, who led the way in exposing how Johnson's government handed huge contracts for providing personal protective equipment, PPE, to firms with no experience of healthcare, but sometimes with close links to the Tories through an express VIP lane that bypassed normal procurement rules. Is there a defence for the government here, though, in the sense that the pandemic wasn't expected, there wasn't enough PPE provision in the system, and they had to get it from somewhere? And if that meant going to the private sector to obtain PPE, then that's what had to be done. Yeah, I mean, that's what the government said, and it comes up daily pretty much with that argument. You know, it was a rush. We had to procure equipment quickly. People were dying, which is all true. But... The National Audit Office released a report last November that stipulated that the government actually thought for a large period of time until late March that its existing stockpiles of PPE would be sufficient to cope with the demand that we would see during the pandemic. (laughs) That was proven to be categorically and quite devastatingly false. And so the government then rushed to procure as much equipment as it could from the private sector. And of course, companies knew that the government, I mean, you're a big fan of football, Adrian, when when a club knows that its player is in demand, or it knows that another club really needs a centre-back, for example, the price of that player is going to go through the roof. And that's exactly what happened in the case of PPE. The price of PPE went up massively. We overpaid by £10 billion for the PPE that we procured from the private sector. And no one's saying that that didn't need to happen. All I'm saying is the government should have realised a lot sooner that that was needed and perhaps we wouldn't have spent so much money. That slow response was costly in other ways too. In the run-up to the pandemic, Johnson missed five consecutive meetings of the government's emergency COBRA committee. The subsequent delay in locking down was a deadly error. When the scale of the pandemic started to emerge in March 2020, around 25,000 hospital patients were discharged to residential care homes without being tested for COVID-19, a decision since described as reckless by MPs on the Public Accounts Committee. Dr Cathy Gardner's father, Don Harris, died in a care home, almost certainly from COVID, and as she told the podcast in September... She's now seeking to hold the government to account via a judicial review. At the start of the pandemic, there was, frankly, a mad panic to clear beds in NHS hospitals. Then the decision was made to discharge people as rapidly as possible out into the community, and that included care homes. 
there was no consideration given as far as I've been able to see as to whether those people had COVID or not, or any steps in place to isolate or to protect the residents that those people were going to live with. And this was a policy designed to ensure that the NHS wasn't overwhelmed with an influx of COVID patients, but that meant that care home residents who may well have had COVID, perhaps who were asymptomatic, i.e. they weren't showing the symptoms of COVID, were being discharged back into care homes like the one where your father was resident. Yes, that's right. So there's a lot of aspects to what you've just said, in fact. I've heard government ministers and others say that, the well, you know, the NHS wasn't overwhelmed during the pandemic last year. Well, most of us know, of course, that it was overwhelmed. People might not have been queuing on the pavements and lying in stretches in the road as they were in other countries, but that's only because they were left to die at home without treatment and they were left to die in care homes without proper medical support in many cases. So that's another lie. The other aspect of this is that the government fundamentally has a legal duty to protect life. It's supposed to take steps to ensure that its citizens don't die when that can be prevented, so long as those decisions make sense. Now, governments sometimes have to, in an emergency, take a step that they know will kill some people, putting it bluntly, but it's for the greater good. And that's a reasonable thing. There are examples you can think of where most people would understand why that would be. But the important part of the law is that the government must carefully consider the decisions that it takes. And there should be a record of how those decisions were taken. And that's the nub of this judicial review, is that we don't believe that the residents in care homes were properly considered according to the law. Their right to life seems to have been completely disregarded. The panic to clear people out of hospital, whether they were positive or not with COVID, overrode the safety of the people that they were going to live with. Cathy Gardner's judicial review is now scheduled to be heard in early 2022. By then, the much-anticipated official COVID inquiry might finally have started. Baroness Hallett was recently appointed to chair it, but the pressure group Keep Our NHS Public has already carried out its own people's inquiry, led by barrister Michael Mansfield. They took evidence from more than 40 experts and members of the public and concluded that Johnson, as well as other members of the government, might be liable for prosecution for misconduct in public office over their handling of the pandemic. We're saying, basically, the elements are all there. We can't bring the prosecution. And the fact that the Director of Public Prosecutions is normally consulted about a case of this, this magnitude. But it seems to me that uh, it's happening in other countries, and I think we put in the report uh, in France and in, in, in Europe, there are other leaders being pursued, and in Brazil, for neglect, basically, or at this sort of level. Now, there are other, all sorts of other possible offences, but it seemed to us that this umbrella misconduct in public office encompasses and embraces both the vernacular he didn't do this and he didn't do that and he didn't. But actually it amounts to the key element to such a degree as to amount to an abuse of the public's trust in the office holder. Seems to me that's absolutely what it is. So that would need the director of public prosecutions, though, to yes. take a stance. Someone who is appointed by Boris Johnson. You're right. It's a difficult situation. However, 
the director, Max Hill, were he to be sitting here alongside us in this interview, he'd say, well, I'm totally independent. That's my point. That's my appointment. Uh, it may be subject to political appointment as to who is eventually put into this position, but it is on advice of various other people besides the politicians, which is true. But I, I think, as we've seen on other decisions which relate to coronavirus, I think the director will, well, he needs to think long and hard about this one. Watch this space. Although while Johnson remains in office, any prospect of a prosecution feels remote. The Metropolitan Police has declined to investigate Christmas parties at Downing Street, despite prima facie evidence that lockdown rules were broken. Johnson, it seems, has friends in high places. And despite an astonishing attack by his former aide, Dominic Cummings, who claimed Johnson said he would rather let the bodies pile high than sanction a third lockdown, a claim which has been denied, Tory MPs have been remarkably loyal. In May, I spoke to Sutton Coldfield MP and former International Development Secretary Andrew Mitchell. It was angry over Johnson's decision to renege on a UK government pledge to keep international aid at 0.7% of GDP, a move condemned by, amongst others, the United Nations Population Fund, the UNFPA. Here's Mitchell and first Becky Ashmore from the charity Plan International UK, spelling out what the cuts would mean. We know for girls that unintended early pregnancies are one of the leading causes of dropout of their education. We know that education is one of the Prime Minister's personal priorities, which he openly states is his ambition to ensure more girls get a quality education. So cutting these services is going to have a direct impact on the ability of the UK to meet those targets. Girls and women not having access to the services that they need is going to mean more families will stay in poverty. They're not going to be able to break the cycle and take advantage of education or economic development opportunities. And I think the UNFPA statement makes a really bold point of when funding stops, it is women and girls that suffer living in remote and underserved communities, also those that are living through humanitarian crises. At the moment, there are more people displaced than there ever have been since World War II. COVID has made that so much worse. We know that COVID has obviously taken a huge strain on health systems around the world. And the secondary impacts mean that sexual reproductive health and rights services have fallen by the wayside. And so for these cuts to come on top of that, it's just going to have an even more devastating impact. So I think it'd be fair to say we're going to see much more preventable deaths as a result of these cuts. We have reduced by 80% the amount of money that we are giving to water and sanitation and hygiene. And you will recall, Adrian, that at the start of this crisis, we were all encouraged to wash our hands while singing God Save the Queen to ensure that we washed them sufficiently. And we were told that hygiene, washing your hands, is absolutely critical to warding off this pernicious epidemic. And yet Britain is cutting by 80% in the heart of an epidemic for money for water and sanitation and hygiene. And in terms of girls going to school as well, we are cutting back enormously the amount of money we spend on family planning. And that means there will be, as a result of that cut, more than 4 million unwanted pregnancies. And there will be, effectively, the result of these figures is 250,000 deaths 
among women and recently born children. I mean, it is the most terrible thing to do and the most terrible time to do it. Andrew Mitchell MP, who also campaigned unsuccessfully against plans to merge his former department, the Department for International Development, into the Foreign Office. But he has also spoken up for Johnson in recent times, even as his crown appeared to be slipping. As Mitchell revealed in his excellent memoir, Beyond a Fringe, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey, he helped Johnson win his place on the approved list of Tory candidates three decades ago and like many who have met him, speaks of his engaging personality. Boris is extraordinarily difficult to dislike because he's extremely funny and entertaining. And he's also done a brilliant job in winning for us all these red wall seats in the West Midlands and in the North East. And be in no doubt, it was Boris that won them because once I knew that the Royal Town was safe. That's so, your constituency, the Royal uh, Town uh, of Sutton Coalfield. Yeah. Once yeah. I knew that all was well there, I went to the Red Wall seats to try and campaign with these brilliant candidates there who are now local champions in the House of Commons. And I used to say to people, you know, are you going to support the Conservatives? And they'd say, no, I'm going to support Boris. And this is the thing that the Labour Party and his critics don't understand, I think, which is that people like him and they warm to him because he has the failings of all of us in some ways. He's a flawed character in the way that we are all flawed, but he's extremely open about it. You quote in the book uh, a colleague of yours, a guy called Richard Simmons, who right at that early stage when Boris Johnson was first being proposed as an MEP, you say that in Richard Simmons' view, Boris was a cynical journalist, a chancer, a brand, not a politician, a less than honest political thorn in Prime Minister Major's side. So Richard Simmons really had the measure of him. Undoubtedly, he's charismatic and you bear witness to the fact that he's attended various fundraising functions that you've organised for charities. But he is fundamentally a blusterer, fundamentally dishonest. Well, the extract that you read out about Simmons is one half of the argument that went on about whether he should be a candidate. And the other half of the argument, which obviously I didn't agree with Simmons' analysis, uh, I was on the side that said he is extremely clever, extremely bright, he's clearly a Conservative, and he should be on the list. And as I've just been explaining to you, I, I'd still, you know, 30 years later or whatever it is, don't think that is wrong. Even though he shafted you over defeat. Well, yes, but we all fight our battles. And I, I think also journalists try to get me set to say he's a liar. I don't say that. I don't think, I don't think politics is, is dignified by calling people liars and so on. You know, he changed his mind. I'm quite happy to, to camp on that. Uh, but obviously, as I say, I think it was a terrible decision. But even if Andrew Mitchell is prepared to forgive Boris Johnson the loss of Shropshire North in a by-election, a traditionally safe Tory seat suggests that voters may not be. The allegations of sleaze, the sense that it's one law for him and another for the rest of us, finally seem to be gaining traction, although it can't be written off yet. Even if Johnson goes, there's no sense that his colleagues will backtrack on his government's draconian anti-protest laws, nor the Nationality and Borders Bill that would criminalise those seeking sanctuary in Britain. The remarkable thing is how Johnson has got away with it for so long. It's fair to say that a Labour Prime Minister would not have been cut anywhere near so much slack. The difference is that when it comes to the mainstream press, Johnson 
is one of them, a journalist who speaks the language of wealthy proprietors. They've got his back, and it's here that Peter Oborn thinks he represents a real threat to our democracy. If you had said 30 years ago that we will have a prime minister who could be proven to be a, a habitual liar, an unscrupulous liar over great matters, uh, you say, well, he can't become prime minister and he couldn't stay prime minister. And what is fascinating, and I think it, it's, uh, it really moves the subject away from Mr Johnson himself to Britain, what is fascinating is that is what we have got, a man who lied his way into power and has continued to lie once in power. I didn't, that's why I tend to think he cannot, in the medium term, survive. Because if you, you can't make decisions on the basis of lying to yourself or to other people, and I think Mr Johnson probably does both, because ultimately you get caught out one more time and also you can't just, you can't, you don't reach the, reach the right decisions. You're sort of, you've got the wrong information, you make the wrong decisions. And so there is a, I think it is a mortal problem for this, in the medium term for this government, but I also think it's a, a huge problem for British democracy. You're asking voters to vote on the basis of falsehoods. You're taking away their democratic rights. They are told all sorts of things via the BBC and the mainstream press from Corey Central Office in the last general election, which simply weren't true. And I, I think that this will, this will end up discrediting the system, as it has done to a large extent in the United States, and creates a very uncertain and, I think, dangerous political situation, and not just political situations, socially, morally as well. Sobering thoughts from Peter Oborn, bringing to a close this special episode of the Byline Times podcast. You can read a monthly diary from Peter only in the print edition of the Byline Times newspaper. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Your subscriptions pay for this podcast too. So go up, head over to bylinetimes.com. And if you've already done so, thank you. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.